Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Joe Posnanski. Joe is the author of The Baseball 100, which is a fantastic book, uh, the latest among many that he's written, all of which I wholeheartedly recommend. He blogs at Joe Blogs, which is JoePosnanski.substack.com. He's podcasting at the podcast and the Joe Blogs podcast because no self-respecting um, sports writer has only one podcast anymore. And he's now working his way down the football 100, which I really want to talk about because that seems even more difficult than the baseball version. But first, we're going to talk about tennis. So, Joe, welcome. Ah, oh, it's great to be here. Always. Fantastic. So let's start with the Australian Open. There was apparently a big match yesterday. I don't know whether you've heard about it. Rafael Nadal won Grand Slam number 21 in a coming back from two sets down against Daniel Medvedev. So let's get right to the big question here. He's got 21. Novak has 20. Roger has 20. What does this mean for Rafael Nadal in the greatest of all time race? Wow. Uh, Let's start with that right away. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously their careers are not over. Uh, so you would think, you would assume that uh, at some point Novak is going to figure out how to get into uh, into tournaments again. Um, and uh, Nadal's obviously not finished. And Roger, who the heck knows? But, you know, what, what really struck me, first of all, what struck me was, wow. I mean, that was, that was a, an entire career summed up in one incredible match, right? I mean, that was everything that we've known and loved about Nadal for, you know, now what, 20, 15 years plus? Almost um, 20. Almost 20 years is, was all there, was all there. There was a moment, I'm actually writing about this. There was the moment after he had gotten broken in the fifth set, uh, you know, he was serving for the match and, and he gets broken and then uh, and then Medvedev is serving, and Medvedev goes up, I think, 30-15 and, and has a drop shot and tries a drop shot. And Nadal, like in perfect Nadal fashion, chases down the drop shot and hits some sort of ridiculous angled winner that was pure touch. And it just reminded me, you know, I think all of us, what a what an incredible like force this guy is, you know, I mean, not, not only because of everybody talks about his fighting and how he goes after everything, but the guy's like probably the, as good a volleyer as anybody in the world. He's as good touch as anybody in the world. In addition to, you know, all of the ferocious topspin and the backhand and forehand. And I mean, you know, he's just, he's everything. So, so that was absolutely amazing to watch. And it did strike me as the match ended and as he won and as you saw him celebrate and people putting up 21, you know, balloons up and everything else they were doing for him. And he's kind of in the lead now of this, of this thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's silly. I mean, at some point you can't really sum up a, a, an entire era with a number, right? This guy won 21, this guy won 20, this guy had a better record against this one. I mean, there's, there's a million ways to look at it, but Hey, he's got 21 and, and none of those other guys do. And, and, uh, and he's now, you know, Novak no longer is the only guy to win, uh, all the majors twice. And, and I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I think, I think it's hard to argue that he's not in the lead right now. Now, when we were talking about this, I think a, a year ago, we were, we were both kind of on the Novak's in the lead 
side of this argument. And that was before he even got to number 20. He seemed like he, he was closing the gap. And even if he didn't close the gap, the, the rest of his resume was so great. But but you think that getting the second Australian Open, getting the double career slam, getting to 21, is that is that enough? Like, I mean, let's just say everybody, the three of them announced, OK, we're calling a truce. None of the big three will ever play a professional <laughs> match again. It, it, it is it is if you have to make the call January 31st, 2002, what am I saying? 2022 is Rafa your pick? Well, uh, not necessarily. No. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I have a pick. I mean, you, you and I've talked about this. I mean, I think each of them has an incredibly strong case as the greatest player ever. And, and I've, I've often made the Novak case largely because I didn't think any very many other people were, uh, you know, later when he, when he was in position to win 21 in the Grand Slam, suddenly people were talking about him as the greatest. But I, I thought he did have a very strong case before that, you know, just because of his record against those guys and 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 the fact that he, you know, he was a little bit later. So he didn't he never really had a period of time where he didn't have to deal with Roger and 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 Rafa. I mean, maybe maybe not Roger at his very, very best, but Roger had, you know, whatever, three, four, five years before before Novak really, you know, activated and, and back in the very early days when Rafa was seen like he was only going to be a clay court uh, threat. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, gun to my head, I've got to choose one. I'm going to say, yeah, I'll take Rafa because he's got 21 and, and, and the others don't. And, and so it's a, it's a very easy thing. And, and the Novak fans would, would say as they should, Hey, Novak's was number one, longer than anybody else. Novak had a winning record against Rafa. Novak had a winning record, a record against Roger. Uh, Novak won more Masters Thousands than anybody else. And and they'd be right. I, I don't I don't think there's a right answer to the question. So so you know you could pick you could pick any of the three and make not just compelling arguments but but irrefutable arguments uh on their behalf but I, I think that the three of them have sort of come to a very quiet, I wouldn't say agreement, but I think all of them sort of concede the guy who has the most majors at the end of this thing is going to have a little tiny edge over everybody else. And right now that's Rafa. Now, you know, if someday you write this tennis 100, then you can't, you can't just do the the key number thing and call them number 21, number 20 and number 20. You, you would have to pick one. You can't, you right. can't weasel out of this forever. Right. No, I know. No, when their careers are over, I will, I will make a final choice on this. I, I, to me, the thing that's weird, is, well, Novak made this entire tournament uh, weird, right? I mean, Novak would have been the favorite had he, had he played. Uh, it was such a fiasco in the way that he didn't play. He, he really hurt his reputation around the world as a, as a person, which I hate to see, because I think there's, there's a lot that's, that's very admirable about the guy, even, even if uh, I couldn't agree, disagree with him more on, on certain things. And so it's, it's really strange. It's a, it was a, it ended up being kind of a strange tournament and that's not to take anything away from Rafa because Medvedev was probably playing better than anybody in the world. So, so, I mean, this was an incredible achievement for him, but it was just a kind of a strange tournament. So I, you know, I, I reserve the right to wait. Here's the thing. 
we're about to go to Paris, right? Where Rafa is going to be, a, I think, a very heavy favorite again to to win. I mean, you can you can actually tell me, you know, from a from a percentage wise uh, point, who is actually going to be the favorite? But you go there, he wins again. Let's say, and who the heck knows if 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 uh, they even let Novak play or if Novak, you know, gives in a little bit or who the heck even knows what happens. Um, and now he's got 22 and it's like, okay, well now that's, that's a sizable difference between, between the, between the group and, and who the heck knows what Nadal has left, who the heck knows what Rafa has left. I mean, uh, Novak has left, who the heck knows what, if Roger's going to come back and, and wouldn't it be wonderful if he did and, and made a run at Wimbledon or something. So I, you know, I, I reserve the right to wait. I just think at this moment in time, uh, Rafa pushed pushed his you know a nose out front. I think. So let's talk about the the Novak thing. We don't need to get into the details because that's disgusting, and everybody's done it already for two weeks. Yes, or four weeks. I don't know how long. It feels like three or four years. But yeah. my big question is: thinking longer term, like if we're thinking in terms of greatest of all time debates, we're going to be having this conversation still in ten years. I mean, we might still be on this Zoom call in ten years. Um, <laughs> so if if we're looking back from a five-year, 10-year vantage point, we're going to look at some specific slams that cases where Federer was injured, where Nadal right. didn't accomplish something. Or when we also have the Djokovic default against Carreño Busta at the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. Yes, so there are these glaring cases of missed opportunities. And what I tend to think that when we, we look back, we tend to forget about the times when players didn't play. Like those don't loom as large as the times when players did show up and they lost a match that they should have won, especially something like the deep ball, which is a pretty obvious case. But is, is this different? Are, are, let's just say hypothetically, Novak gets vaccinated or whatever. And he ends up, this ends up being the only one he misses. If that happens, it obviously played a pr- pretty big role in Nadal getting 21. But d- do you think people are going to look back on it and say like, this is a major factor in comparing these two guys' careers? I don't know if it'll be a, a major factor, but I don't think we're going to forget it. Okay, so so you you bring up a great point. Uh, N- Nadal wasn't playing uh, at a couple of the majors that uh, that uh, that Rafa won. I mean that uh, Novak won. Uh, Roger, we know, has missed a bunch of tournaments. So I think there are you know there are plenty of those things where somebody was hurt or 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 COVID prevented them from coming or or whatever the case may be, but. I think Novak has the two most glaring uh, of those. One is the default, which is, you know, look, he was, he was heavy, heavy, heavy favorite to win that tournament and, and seemed well on his way to doing so. And it was such a weird thing. I mean, he lost his temper like he often does, but there was certainly no intent on his part to hurt anybody or, or cause a problem. He just lost his mind. He deserved to be defaulted. I'm not, I'm not saying he didn't, but it was just a weird, unlucky moment where, where he just, he just, uh, you know, got caught on the, on, on the wrong day and, and he gets defaulted. So that's a big deal. And this one is going to be a big deal, not because he missed it, but because of the way he missed it, right? He's there in Australia. He's 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 ready to play. They say he can play. Uh, the tournament does, and then the 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 country goes. No, wait a minute. You know, you you obviously uh, can't. You you you're not living up to 
to, you know, the protocols we expect of everybody. And then there's a fight and it becomes political and it's, and it's the whole thing is really kind of just gross. And so I think you, you do remember that. I don't know that Rafa fans, and there were a lot, obviously, of Rafa fans who, who are, who should be celebrating what happened are going to look at this with an asterisk at all. But I think some other people will. And I think when you look at sort of the, the, the grand scheme of how this thing goes, those two tournaments um, are going to play a very big role in the conversation. Assuming, assuming things don't dramatically change. Look, Novak could come back and win, you know, the next four. I mean, he really could. It's not, it's not impossible by any stretch. And then I I don't know who else even is in the ball game when it comes to the argument. So, uh, so the argument is, is still very much in play, um, but, but I do think that, that Novak really, really, uh, messing up at, at the U S open and then, and then the whole situation here, it, I think it will play a role for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I lean towards the side that we're going to look back at the, the default as a bigger deal, just because I spend so much time yeah, looking at, looking at results. And when you're looking at results, it's like, it's like if you're looking at somebody's career record on, in total baseball or something. You, you don't, you don't see the, the seasons they miss. You see the season that they hit 212. Um, and that's the one that sticks out, but this might be different. Cause as you point out, it was such, such a big story. It's almost, it will be unfathomable in five years, how big of a story this was, I think. Um, Agreed. Agreed. I think it's the biggest, I mean, this is what, what's really strikes me. And it's, and I do find this very sad. I think this was, this was by far the biggest story surrounding Novak Djokovic in his entire career. I mean, you talk about a guy who's been number one for whatever, 300 weeks or whatever it was, uh, who's won 20 slams, who's won 30 plus masters thousands, who's been, you know, this, this just iconic figure worldwide. And I think this was by far the biggest story surrounding him. So it's going to be awfully tough. I think for, for all of us to forget that. Yeah, definitely. So after, after two sets, Medvedev won the first two sets, maybe not comfortably, but he looked good at the end of two sets. I think, I think the, the Infosys on screen graphics were saying they were giving Nadal a 4% chance. I could be wrong about this, but I think they gave him a 4% chance of coming back. And my very approximate numbers put him about 5%. Do you think that's right? Should, would you have given Nadal a better shot of coming back from that deficit? Um, probably not. Well, here's the thing about Nadal and, and it's really stunning. He has not done this that much. He's not, he hasn't had to, to, right? Right, right. He's not come back as we all know of him as this fighter or whatever, but his five set record is not as good as you think it is. And, and, uh, which I found through you and, you know, so I, he was down to, and to me, the moment that it shifted is, is, he was down love 40, right? Down three, two in the third set and down love 40. And I don't know what the percentages were at that exact instant. I don't even know if tennis does like, you know, the way they do in football where, you know, you have at this particular moment in time, you have a 99.7% chance of winning. But when it was, when it was love 40, uh, three, two in the third set, yeah, I mean, he had a 0% chance as far as I was concerned. I mean, you know, I mean, not zero, but but yeah. no way. There's no way. And, and you know, even Nadal is is aging. Even, you know, is, is you, you want to believe he's immortal. Uh, but, you know, he's in his mid-30s and, and, and Medvedev is 
absolutely hitting the prime of his of his tennis life and and Medvedev he's a force he's a force you're like how are you going to break him you know he's, he's he's got the great serve and and how are you going to break him you know enough times to come back to win especially if you get broken there and then when he came back and held in that service point it was like all right well you know now you might break Medvedev right like if if, if you do this enough times you might break Medvedev. And I thought Medvedev looked a little bit broken in the, in the fourth set and through some of the fifth set, I thought at that point, Nadal sort of was, was, you know, whatever, establishing his authority in, in, in the match. Uh, and then it comes down to the fifth set. And, and again, Nadal is serving to, to win it. He gets broken. And I thought, wow, he, can he really come all this way back and still not win this match? You know? And, 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 uh, uh, of course, he he broke right back and and uh, and won easily on his on his last serve. So, um, yeah, I I thought he had a virtually zero chance at 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 a couple of points in the third set. So you make a, a good point there. We have Nadal, who I say this with all due respect for his his career and his status as an all time great. But as you say, he's he's in his mid thirties. He's coming back from a foot injury that meant yeah. he, he wasn't even sure he was going to be here. Um, he's playing a guy who according to my ratings for the tournament was the best hardcore player in the world, better than Djokovic by a small margin. So the best hardcore player there is. And so we have this situation where, I mean, again, all due respect, a gimpy 35 year old on his third best surface manages to beat out the best player in the world on hard courts. Does that mean that with, with Rafa fading with Djokovic possibly out of the picture, are we in a weak era now? I don't, I don't know that it that it's a weak era. I I think Medvedev is is terrific uh as a player. I mean I I really really think he's 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 a very special player. And and what he did in the US Open beating Novak there, I mean Novak was obviously under tremendous pressure and and everything else, but what Medvedev did winning there was incredible what Medvedev did almost coming back, you know, the reverse of this at the US Open against Rafa where he came back from two sets down. Um, you know, I, I think the guy, I, here's what I would say. I think that when and if uh, Djokovic, Roger, and Rafa are out of the picture, I think Medvedev's like a lot better than everybody else right now. Like, I, I think Medvedev is the one guy, and that includes, you know, Zverev, it includes team it includes you know some of these other guys now maybe some of the younger guys are going to come along still and 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 really step up and and move into that picture but you know if you ask are we in a weaker era sure we're we're not in an era where we have three you know three maybe i don't even know if it's maybe i think the three greatest players in the history of of men's tennis uh all playing at the same time all playing more or less at their height yeah, you're, you're, you know, and then, and at that point you had Andy Murray, who was probably, you know, as close to that level as you could be. Um, yeah, you're, we're nowhere near that. So yeah, we are entering a definitely a weaker uh, time, but, but that was inevitable. It was inevitable that there was, we were not, we were, it was impossible for us to, to go from, from the big three or big four into another era that was going to be anywhere near as good. But I think it's going to be an opportunity for a bunch of young players to, uh, I mean, it, it looks like we have some some very exciting young players. It's just going to take a little while for them to get there. 
So probably the the best the the best example of a weak era that most people would have in mind would be before the arrival of Federer when Roddick got his slam, Gustavo Querton won a couple slam, Carlos Moya, Kafelnikov. Do you think that the Medvedev, Zverev, Sinner, Alcaraz era, let's say the let's say 2024 to 2028, just to throw yeah. some numbers out there, is that is that going to be better than the turn of the century so-called weak era? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I like Alcaraz a lot. I like Sinner a lot, uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, you know, we liked Roddick a lot. I mean, Roddick had, had, you know, he was, he was obviously not the most well-rounded player, but with that serve and that forehand, you just thought he could beat anybody on, on basically any surface. And we know how close he came to beating Roger on grass and, and, you know, at Wimbledon and all of that. Um, I don't know if somebody's going to emerge. I thought it was very, very interesting. And we might've talked about this on the last podcast, but the one sort of the one U S open where you didn't have the big three involved, you know, you had that incredibly weird teams, very final where neither guy seemed to know how to win. Right. It was like, they were, they, they were playing like club players in the fifth set or, you know, they were just, 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 just hitting the ball back and forth. They weren't without anything on it. And you were like, wow, this is, this is bad. Like these guys really don't know uh, how to be number one, like how to be at this high level. And, and I think that there's a tremendous strain on, on being number one. I've seen it. uh, I remember uh, in golf, going back to golf, I remember Nick price, who was a tremendous, tremendous player in the hall of fame. Um, Telling us point blank, he hated being number one. He didn't want to be number one. Like he didn't need all of that. You know, he didn't want to be the guy who represented the entire sport. He didn't want that. And I, I think you have to really want, I think Medvedev does. I think Medvedev is a guy that really does want to be number one. I'm not sure how much those other guys do. And, and, you know, the young guys certainly have that hunger right now, but we have to see. So yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, I see a wide open era coming, um, you know, and, and where will a bunch of these guys uh, step up and, and, and become, you know, where will the Canadians be? Where will, you know, there's a bunch of guys out there that could absolutely step in and become, you know, a a dominant player. uh, But, but it's very unclear right now. I want to come back to the Canadians. I know you like Shapovalov. Um, but since we're talking about weak eras and all this stuff, let's, let's talk about the women's game a little bit. I'm not, I'm not starting trying to preface this by saying it is a weak era, but it's the same sort of topic. Um, Ashley Barty seems to be a pretty dominant number one at this point, And she seemed preordained to win this title coming in. And then she, she did it with style. So we have the one, the one piece of evidence that says, okay, the women's game is finally after a, a crazy few years, stabilizing to some extent with Ashley Barty at the top. On the other hand, we have Danielle Collins in the final and, you know, she's made a semifinal before, but she's also like the latest of, I don't, I don't even know. I've lost count how many women have made major finals in the last three or four years, but you didn't really see coming. I mean, I think she's better than her ranking going in, but I didn't see her in this final. So do you think which which side of this do you think represents where the WTA is headed? Are we, uh, are we moving toward the Barty plus one or two era of some more stability or are we going to see a new face in, in a women's final at every slam? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I, I will admit that there have been several times like with Schwatek and, and, and 
and Pliskova and Sepalenka and 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 players like that, where I'm like, oh, okay, you know what? They're they're ready. They're ready to 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 become a, a you know a a uh, if not a dominant force, you know, a player that's going to run a Kanu at at at, uh, at the U.S. Open, where it's like, okay, they're they're going to step in now, and and this is going to become a um, you know just a little bit more predictable era where you're going to have top level players and, and Ash Barty has, has moved to that spot, you know, after a long time, I will say, but she's moved to that spot where now pretty reliably, you can count on her being, you know, in the, in the quarters for sure, the semis and then some finals and she's going to win her share and, and all of that. Um, but you know, where's Coco golf where, you know, where's, uh, um, uh, Sakari, where's I mean, like, like there's a bunch of players out there that you, they they show for a tournament, and you're like, this this person's ready to become absolutely a top five player or number two or number, you know, they're going to win multiple majors, and and it's it's we haven't seen it, you know, we've not seen them some put that together. So I I don't know that we're gonna we're gonna see um you know, this thing, this thing go, I, it's, it's clearly going to be a situation where, where players um, are just going to have to start putting more consistent performances together. Cause I don't think, you know, I could be wrong. I don't think it's come down to specialists, right. Where somebody's great on hard courts, but not on clay or great on clay, but not on grass or whatever. I mean, I'm sure there's some of that, but I think it's more just inconsistency. Just, just players are like, you're like, okay, this, this is the player now. This is the the young player that is going to step in and become the next great player. And then they lose like in the first round or the second round. So, so yeah, I don't see the stability coming just yet, but I hope it does. I mean, I, I think the women's game would really thrive uh, even a little more if we had a little bit more of a rivalry situation and a little bit more of a situation where, you know, you could rely on, a couple of players making it to the semis because because they're the best players in the world. Yeah, the the Barty Sabalenka rivalry was really starting to build last spring, yeah. I think, on the clay, and that looked great. It was a great contrast in styles. Um, if you had to pick one from the the group of of challengers like Sabalenka, Sviantek, Paula Bedosa, and I contemplate you mentioned a couple others, Sakari, Coco Goff. I mean, the, the problem here is there's so many there's so many potential top five players, but there's only five spots in the top five. Um, that's my, my, um, my math background speaking. Uh, <laughs> if you had to pick one multi-slam winner from that group, who's your pick? Wow. Um, there ha- I mean, there has to be one pretty much. I mean, not, there does have to be, but well, there, like- there definitely, there definitely is one, but, but picking out who that person is, uh, is not- look, I, I was all in on Coco Goff. I was all in on that. I, I just thought, she was going to be, and she still might. I mean, she's still so young. I mean, I'm not trying to in any way, shape, or form suggest that she's not uh, going to be a, an incredible player and win multiple slams and all that. But it's, I think it has been slower than, than, than anybody expected. And, and uh, you know, I, I really, really enjoy watching Sabalenka play. I, I think that's, that's a player who, to me, you know, she's still quite young. Schweitek is, is also a player I really enjoy. Well, 
she was a great example to me because she did make the semis, right? In yeah, deck. and and she's and, been the most consistent. I, I I saw some stat. I think she's made the quarterfinal of each of the last six slams or something. That's yeah, probably wrong, yeah. but something like that. Yeah, I mean, she's a player who who I think um, you know it does show up all the time, and she's so young. She's a she's just twenty, and so I'm like, she's a player who could definitely do that. But then she just got absolutely blown off the court in that, in, you know, against uh, um, against uh, Collins. Collins. I mean, just Collins just played absolutely out of her mind. She played so great, and and I love her. I I think she's great. I mean, she's she's not. She's twenty eight. She's you know she's been a a, a player uh, that's been around for a long time. I mean, this was clearly the tournament of her life, but she played great. But it was still like wow, just. That kind of stuff didn't happen with the big three. It's like the big three, big four. They spoiled us, right? Like every semifinal was was Rafa, Roger, Andy, and Novak, right? Like that was literally every every semi for 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 years. And they spoiled us. They never had a bad tournament. They never got knocked out in the second round. It was it was crazy, and and that's just not been the case in the women's game for quite a while now. So. I think Svitek is is a terrific player, and she's going to be a, a terrific player for a long time. So I she's she'll de- I I mean definitely she'll win multiple majors. I I, I strongly believe that. Yeah, I, I'm on record predicting that Sabalenka will win 20 slams, but I'm starting to worry that that's not going to happen. So I'm I'm leaning towards Team Ego. Um, Let's see. I just, oh, right. How much of this do you think is mental then? Like you're pointing out the, the, the extreme differences, like you say, between the, the big four era and the women's game right now. And you will often hear, uh, hear women say in press conferences that, you know, I saw what Emma did at the U.S. Open and, you know, I beat her in junior. So now I feel like I can go beat anybody. And I feel like we've heard this sort of refrain for maybe five years now that, in the women's game, not only do we as fans know that anything is possible, all the players know that anything is possible too. And there's, there's no aura around the top players, although maybe Barty's starting to get that a little bit. So do you think there's much of a mental component in that? Or is it just that you know, the top players in the women's game aren't as good as the big four were at their peak? I think, well, nobody's as good as the big four. At their peak. <laughs> that's fair. That's right. I mean, there's, there's nobody who's at that level, but I think there's great depth in the women's game. And, and sometimes great depth does not, necessarily uh you know that that it doesn't necessarily make for great watching right it's like if you have 30 players who have a real chance of getting to the final uh that it sort of wrecks the narrative a little bit and and there are not 30 players there were there have been times in in the men's game for sure where there were you know a couple of dozen players who could make it to the final and we would see very surprising finalists. I mean, we can, we can look back. It's been so long since that happened, but even a guy like, like Kevin Anderson could make finals and, and, you know, and, and not that long ago. And, and so like there were, there have been different times where that has happened. Uh, the women's game goes so deep. I mean, it just goes so, so deep. So, you know, right now I'm looking at the, at the, at the, you know, rankings and Simona Halep has fallen tremendously. She's 23 in the world now. Um, but there's nobody that Simona Halep can't step on the court and beat. I mean, nobody there's, you know, including Ash Barty. I mean, like if she, if she's right and, and she's playing at their, at the, you know, at her, at her high level, she can beat anybody. Madison Keys is 28 in the, in the world. 
And uh, she was just blowing people off the court. Um, and so I think there is tremendous depth uh, in, in the women's game. So I think there's that. But of course, tennis is, in, in so many ways, in my view, tennis is the most mental of all games. I mean, golf, you know, is, is, is mental in its own way. But I mean, so much of it is confidence and how much belief you have in yourself and, and trying to figure out how to get out of, out of, you know, troubled situations and, and keeping your head straight during, you know, when you're up and, and there's so many mental issues. So yeah, of course, it's, it's so difficult, I think, to not only be mentally strong for seven consecutive matches to win one major, but then to come out the next major and, 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 and do the same thing is, uh, it's very difficult and it should give us even more, you know, admiration for people like, like, uh, Steffi and, and Serena and Martina and Chris and, and, and the great, great players who did it time after time after time, because there are a lot of players in the world who are good enough to beat them, uh, on the right day. Do you think that more players ought to work with or even travel with a, a mental coach? Like Sviantec is the one who has a full-time mental coach with her. And Sabalenka, I think, worked with one in the off-season. It's, it's something you hear about from a lot of players. I'm sure there's many players who have worked with psychologists who don't talk about it, and it's becoming more common. But it seems like there's a lot of room for that to develop even further in the direction that Sviantec has taken it. Do you think that's, do you think that's the direction the game is going? No question. I don't think there's any question about it. I think that a lot of times in the past that your your coach was also meant to be your mental coach, right? Like the the, the person who was who was working with you on strategy and 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 on development and all of those things would also supposed to be the person who was going to mentally get you there. And certainly nothing wrong with that. And some of those some of the best coaches are incredibly. Um, you know, talented as far as mental coaches, but, but it is a different thing. And, and I think that some of these mental coaches who can, who can really, whatever it takes to be at your very, very best day after day is to me, like, that's, that's the most important thing in tennis. I mean, the most important thing and in golf, I mean, I think those two sports share that individual, uh, thing that that make it so like you're you know you have to be you have to be good this week you have to be good next week you have to be good on Thursday you have to be good on Sunday you have to be good on, you know it's it's a very it's tough to get up mentally time after time after time after time and and again to me that's why when you look at Novak you look at Rafa you look at Roger holy cow I mean I think the most amazing thing about those guys are when you see those streaks, especially for Roger and Ralph and uh, Novak, those streaks of consecutive quarterfinals, consecutive semifinals. Um, you know, the fact that those two have won what every single major, except for one and or two in the last, you know, six, seven, eight years. I mean, it's, it's, it's lunacy. It's lunacy that they're at the very best, but I, but your, your other point is right. I think mentally those guys are incredibly, incredibly strong, but I also think the depth hasn't been there the way it is in the women's game. Yeah, that could, that, that could definitely be a factor. So speaking of that depth, actually, I wanted to circle back on the Canadians you mentioned. One of them, Dennis Shapovalov. I know you're a fan. I think you tweeted that love. you love watching Shapovalov play. Um, 
he's a pretty one dimensional guy, at least statistically. He can look good on backhand on return because of the uh, because that backhand is so flashy, but also because of that backhand, his return results aren't that great. Right. Um, do you think there's still room for him to improve and become more of a contender, or is he kind of are, are we is flashy Shapovalov the Shapovalov we're going to get for the next five or ten years? Well, he is young enough that I think he could improve. He has improved a lot. I mean, you know, he's as wild as he is now. He he's he's much less wild than he was even a couple of years ago. Um, his return game is it's tough though. I mean, I I love watching him for probably the reason that that he he might never you know peak as a player, which is I love that big flashy backhand. I love the way he throws himself in every shot. Um, but that that's tough on returns, you know, I mean, they, he swings big on return and, and, you know, you, you look at the great returners. I'm not even talking about Novak who's I think the greatest ever, but you look at uh, Medvedev, who's a great returner, right. And Medvedev stands so far behind the baseline and, and, and just works his way into the point. And I'm not, I'm not sure Shapovalov can do that. I'm not sure that's his, that's his, game and and at the end of the day i'm not sure he's going to be the best canadian i mean i think uh uh is is in some ways more solid to me as a player i just love watching him play i just love watching shabavala play i i just think he's he he is a guy who on any given day could beat anybody he is a guy who who uh just brings such energy and and fun uh, to, to the matches. I mean, he's just so much fun to watch. I mean, he's, uh, I, I love, um, I, I don't know that, that it's, that the, the future is, is, uh, is any brighter than the present. I, I don't know that he's going to be able to take that step up. Um, but he's going to be a favorite of mine to watch for a, for a very long time. Yeah, not only is he someone who could beat a top player on any given day, I get the sense he believes it, which is something that you can't oh, yeah. say about everybody on tour. That's a, a great thing to see. The one last question about the Australian Open, the final was five and a half hours long. Um, we've seen it happen a couple of times before, but then, I mean, that's pretty extreme, even for yeah. Rafael Nadal major final territory. This is even extreme for Yankees, Red Sox, playoff game type durations. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I kind of hate every question that asks, is this good for tennis? But I kind of have to ask, is this good for tennis? I mean, is, are fans going to be be hooked by something that takes six hours to sit down and watch? Well, it's tough. I mean, the, anytime you start throwing timing questions out there, it's tough. And, I, you know, I look at it from an American audience perspective and not a worldwide audience perspective, which is obviously different it's going to be tough anyway, right? Cause just to, to watch it live, you got to get up in the middle of the night and, and uh, you know, from the Australian open. And so, uh, so it's going to be different no matter, you know, there are going to be some things. I, what, what I, what I find myself believing as a major tennis fan is I would not want a shortened version of what we saw, right? Like I wouldn't want it to be best of three sets, uh, I wouldn't want to play no ad. I, I don't know what other ways you do it to, 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 uh, you know, reduce the time. Uh, I don't know that it's great for television. I don't know that it's great for tennis. Um, I think what you get is a lot of people who would just watch the, the, the fifth set, but you don't know there's going to be a fifth set. That's, that's the beauty of the sport. You you have no idea what you're going to get when you start baseball, has you know baseball has its big issues with time but 
when you sit down and watch a baseball uh, game, you you have a general sense. It'll probably be around three hours, three and a half hours. But in the playoffs, it could be four hours, it could be four and a half. But tennis, it could be an hour and a half, it could be five and a half. I mean, we have no idea. We literally have no idea. It could be it could be over in a blink of an eye. Uh, I mean, look, if 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 he had broken Nadal in that third set and won the the third set six four. How long would it have been? It would have been less than two hours, right? It would have been. Oh, no, it would have been. It would have been over three. Um, wow. That wow. second set was almost an hour and a half. It was a long set. That's right. That's right. So yeah. So, but even then, it would have even been three versus five and a half. Yeah. So, uh, but you're right. I mean, it's it's uh, it's hard to say. I I think here's the thing where I come down to. I come down to this in baseball. I come down to this in tennis for sure. And that is the sport is the sport. You know, I mean, like there are things you can do that that can make it a little bit more television friendly, a little bit more fan friendly. And maybe you do them if you feel like the the, like I'm totally for a tie break after the fifth set. I'm totally for that. I do not I do not believe in playing on and on until until the the match is over. Um, I, you know, as, as fair as that might be at some point, can't have it. I, I just don't think it's right. And it's basically um, a tie anyway. I mean, come on, it, it, a tie break at the end of the fifth set isn't that different from 13-11. You got to break right. it somehow. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that that's, you know, so I'm all for that. I'm all for some of those things. But I don't I don't want to lose five sets. I don't want to lose sort of these grueling matches where where you see these two, you know, players at 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 their, you know, try, at their most exhausted trying to figure out a way to win. I think that is a big part of tennis. So, you know, is it good for tennis? I don't know, but that match was, you know, absolutely breathtaking to watch. Like, I guess the, what I wonder about is it, with Rafa and his prominence at the top of the game, we aren't going to speed up the pace of play very much right. because if you do that, you, you kind of break Rafa. But so, so what you end up with is baseball and tennis are kind of doing the same thing where they're nibbling at the edges of trying to yeah. take away a second here and there when the fundamental problem is, I mean, if it's a problem, again, stipulate it's a problem, then there's so much time between points or between pitches, yeah. all the fidgeting, whatever, that that's totally new. If you look at it on a century or right. half century sort of perspective in tennis, 50 years ago, a three hour match was really unusual. Even a two hour match was considered long. And yeah. you had you had guys who were kind of stepping into their second serve. They, they would serve in volley, miss the serve. They'd be like pivoting and serving at the same time when they got back for the second serve. It went so fast. And when Rafa retires, whenever, whether that's one year, five years away, um, is there an opportunity to not push that far back, but ratchet down the, the shot clock in some meaningful way so that it basically makes a five-hour match impossible? Maybe four hours is still in the, in the, in the range of possibilities, but basically say, if you're not, whatever game you're fit enough to play at this pace is the game we're going to have. Like you would sacrifice some of the physicality for sure, but you also gain a lot of time without having to nibble around the edges all the time. Is that a a feasible type of solution? I, I, from that perspective, I hope it is for sure. I, you know, there's, there's something I was watching. I, every so often when I'm watching a match, this will just hit me, even though it's, it's there every match. And that is the, getting three or four balls from the ball boy, looking them over, hitting two back to the ball boy before serving. That's 
unbelievably new. I mean, that's like in the last, whatever, 10, 15 years, right? I, I mean, yeah. that's, you watch old, you know, not even that old of matches. You watch Sampras and, and, uh, and Agassi and, you know, in the late nineties and, that wasn't the case where they, they get the ball and they serve, you know, I mean, it's really funny for me to watch like guys in the, in the seventies and eighties who would literally hold two balls in their hand to serve. Like they would serve the first one. And then if they made their first serve, they would just have that ball in their hand because they were using one handed backhands anyway. So they would just have the ball in their hand while they were playing, which is, which is crazy, but it was, it was much, much quicker. And that is a direct line with baseball. Like you watch a baseball game from the eighties, pitcher gets the ball, pitcher throws, pitcher gets the ball, pitcher throws. Like there was no, there was no sitting around and staring each other down and the batter stepping out of the box. There was like, you know, there was one guy named Mike Hargrove who would step out of the box. Uh, and, and he, it was so unusual. They called him the human rain delay because he would, he would take so much time and I mean, now that guy, there's, there are a thousand human rain delays in baseball. Like everybody is. And, and that's the case. I do think that that is, it's, it's something I've not loved about watching Rafa play. I think Rafa just, I get it. I mean, when you play as hard as, as Rafa plays, you better slow the pace down, but it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's truly ridiculous. And, you know, right before one of his very, very big serves, um, in uh in i guess maybe in this in the game that he was broken in the fifth set uh there was a time violation and it was not just a regular time violation it was like it got to zero he he wasn't even ready to serve he you know it wasn't like he was even on the line and you know you get one time violation you you can use it do whatever you want but it's like that's that's not in the spirit of the game i don't think and and i do think that he he has slowed the game down significantly. Um, and that's not fun. I, I mean, that's not really fun to watch. And, and, and I do think it's, I get why he does it and, and nobody plays harder, but it's, yeah, I would like to see him do some things along those lines. Good to hear you say that. I feel like the, the consensus is often, it often just gets stuck on the incremental stuff and in incremental stuff, just like in baseball, it's never going to get us there. It's just going right. to keep us from, keep us from getting six hour matches more often. Okay. So you have written the baseball 100. Um, the football 101 is halfway done. I'm, I'm getting prepared to start the tennis 128. Yes. Apparently 101 is not enough. Right. Um, I thought you were a glutton for punishment, but then I was like, oh, well, 128 is a nice round number. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm, I got to start with the football project. I don't know a lot about football in general, and I know even less about football stats. I only know it's extremely complicated and not as far along as, of course, baseball, but many other, other uh, sports because the different positions contribute such different things. How on earth do you rank football players? Well, it's not easy. Uh, unless you just want, I mean, you can, I mean, you know, like every, everything is like, it's not easy if you're trying to do it seriously and, and very easy if you're not. Um, football is tougher than baseball for sure, because it's hard to separate players from each other in, in football, much harder than it is in baseball, certainly much harder than it is in, in, in an individual sport like tennis. Um, because, you know, one offensive lineman, uh, how much is that one person doing, you know, when you're on an offensive line of five, 
people. I mean, there are certain stats you can look at, but even those stats are are tough to see. You can say, okay, this person gave up this many sacks, um, but you don't really know for sure how many times that they, you know, the assignment was, was supposed to be picked up by somebody else or, or whatever the case may be. So it's difficult. It's such a team sport and, and the players are so closely uh, integrated that it's very, very difficult to try to, to try to say, okay, well, other than a quarterback where you have, you do have more to work with, it's difficult to try to say, okay, this person was great. Um, even though the team was bad or this person was not as good, even though the team was great. It's, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing to do, Um, but fun, but fun. And, you know, I think you, you, you start with the premise when you do a football uh, countdown, you start with the premise that, Hey, you know what? You could do this list with a hundred, you know, 80 different players, right? I mean, like you, your list could be completely different. This is, this is all just an exercise in order to to tell the stories of 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 these great players and of football itself. So so that was sort of the mindset that I had going in. But it's it is a I think lists like this. I think you're I love that you're doing this list, and I think lists like this um, do fit individual sports better. Baseball is the closest team sport to an individual sport. It's because you have it is one-on-one in so many instances, hitter versus pitcher, that that there is a very individual quality to it. Uh, but golf, tennis, boxing, individual sports like this, I think, are the are the ones that are, I don't know if it's it, they're easy, they're not, but it's at least the most sort of uh, apples to apples that you're ever going to get. So with your with your baseball list, you, you had a, a, a pretty like a well-developed algorithm, right? You talked about Tango helping you with it. And that was a starting point. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I had my friend, Tom Tango, who does, uh, who, who invented basically wins above replacement. Um, and I came up with a, with a special formula just for my list. So that's where it started and it built from there, but, but that was the starting point. Were there players who that algorithm spit out where you just thought like, how, how on earth is this guy top 100? Not so much how is this guy not 100 as much as saying this person's not going to be in my top 100. It just okay. not, yeah. I mean, you know, like my baseball 100 is not in any way, shape, or form uh, the list that we spit out. I mean, it is it, that's that was the, the starting point, and then and then I did all sorts of other things to to come up with the list, including adding players from the Negro Leagues and from Japan and and other places where who were not on that list for 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 obvious reasons. So um so the list was a starting point, but it was a great starting point. It was a great it was a great place for me to sort of get my mind around um you know what this list is going to look like. And of course that's not true in football. There is no statistical formula that you can do uh, that would uh, that would work in football the same way. Were there any players that the the initial list spit out that you wouldn't have otherwise included, but the fact that the list spit them out convinced or led you to become convinced that you know this guy belongs? That's a good question. Um, not, I don't think so. I wouldn't say there was anybody on the list who was surprising. To me, there were probably some players on the list who were surprising how high they were. 
You know what I mean? Like there were, there were certain players on the list that I'm like, Oh, that person is probably, you know, pretty close to the top 100. Cause I, the list spit out all the way to a thousand. So I had like a thousand players uh, that I was working with. And so I'd see people in the top hundred. I'd be like, Oh, you know what? I, I would have guessed that person was close. I wouldn't have guessed that person was number 64, you know, like that would never, like there were certain players like that. And, and I did take that very strongly into consideration. There are players on this list who I think people are, you know, they're, they're like, ah, that I, that person that wasn't one of the hundred greatest players ever. And, and I won't say it cause I, I don't, I'm not revealing the list itself, but I would say, well, actually, if you look at it from a pure statistical standpoint, that person's a top 50 player, you know, I mean, there were, there were a few players like that. Um, when you were writing the list, you know, obviously it takes a lot of time to write it and you're going to do a lot of research for the first time when you're writing it. Um, uh, did any of the rankings change as you were researching, learning more about these players as you wrote about them? They didn't, but that was a very purposeful thing. So what I did for the, for the baseball 100, uh, and I'm doing again for the football one-on-one, but it's, but it's a different, it's a different scenario with football, because I think when I turn football one-on-one into a book, I think the rankings will change. Um, but with the baseball 100, what I did was I worked however long it took to put the list together. And the day that I said, okay, this is my 100, I promised myself I wouldn't change it. I, I said, that's, this is it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be, uh, like swayed by the moment where I'm, you know, researching Robin Yount and going, wow, Robin Yount was even better than I thought. And then I'm going to move him up and move somebody else back. No, I figured I'm going to, I'm going to give the hundred here, here they are. This is the hundred plus that was a, for me, it was like two phases. And and once I got into the writing phase uh, of this, I wanted to be able to concentrate my entire thought process on um on getting getting the the writing done and getting the writing right and making each story uh you know as good as it could be each each essay represent the player as much as i could so so once i got started i said no more changes uh, uh for the list That's, that seems like a healthy way to go about it i'm trying to stick with that but i think out of the 12 drafts i've written so far like six of them i've been really tempted like, oh, yeah. this, I didn't oh, realize how good this guy was. <laughs> it's tempting. It is. I There was literally never a day that I didn't go like, eh, maybe I should have had that guy, you know, four spots higher. But you also have to sort of let go. Maybe you don't because of the way that you're doing this. But but I had to let go of precision. Like I had to let go of the idea there was really any difference between number 57 and number 45. Like I like at, at some point, these are just numbers for, for, for what we're talking about. And, and, and I wanted this list to be the best representation of my idea of what baseball is. And once I got that together, it's like, okay, no more, no more changes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, maybe my list is a little bit more algorithm driven than yours, but there's the, the difference in eras, I think, is even greater in tennis than in baseball. Yes. And yes. when you consider the men's game versus the women's game, that's like that, that that's a, an exponent to add to how much difference there is between eras. Um, so, yeah, you, I think I, I say in my intro pretty much exactly what you said, that it's, you have to accept the fact that, you know, 55 and 85 are, you know, depending on the day, they right. could they could switch. It doesn't it, it isn't really what it's about. They're both great. Fine. Move on. Um 
since since you're talking about doing these every day, I remember when you started rolling out this project at the athletic and and you're doing them every day, which is mind blowing the amount that you're producing and and Carl Bialik asked me to ask you, how do you keep up your produ- productivity in general? Like how, how can you, I mean, you, these are like 3000 word essays you were writing. How, how yeah. did you crank these out every day? Well, uh, I, or, let me phrase I, the question differently. Do you remember your kids' names? Yeah, I was going to say, I basically, when you are willing to sacrifice everything else in your life, you can, you can get a lot done. No, um, I, I got into a rhythm when it came to that. And, and it's not a significantly different rhythm than, than what I usually have. You know, I, I tend to be incredibly prolific as a writer. And I say that laughing because it's prolific is the only word I could use for, for the nonsense that I do. Um, but, you know, I, I got into the rhythm. The, the idea of doing a, a new essay every day was by design. The design was, I need to get to the end of this list. I had started a a baseball 100 before a couple of different times. I didn't make it to the end. I'm like, there's only way I'm going to make this to the end is if I give myself a challenge. And that challenge is to do this literally every single day. And then once I said to the athletic, okay, you guys, I'm going to do this for you. You guys can have, because I had been doing it already. And I said, all right, I'll do this for you. Well, now I had to do it every day because now it was like, like a real thing. It wasn't just me on my, on my blog. Although now my blog is a different situation, but at that point, my blog was like a side gig for me. And so it's like, eh, if I, if I need to stop, I can stop. It'll, it'll, it'll be fine. Everybody's getting it for free. It doesn't really matter. Um, but now people are paying for it. It's, you know, it's part of a, a real deal. I had an editor and, and everything else that I had to answer to to some degree. And so it's like, all right, well now I've got to do it every day. So, so I think you get into that rhythm, but it was, my wife can tell you, I mean, it was truly all consuming. I mean, I was in my office, whatever, 18 hours a day, either researching the next player or finishing off the last player or writing today's player. It was, there was, it was constant, constant, constant um, work. I thought about it nonstop. I would dream about it. I mean, it was literally everything that, that was going and, and there was something kind of fun about it. Cause it was like three months, three and a half months of incredibly intensive work. Um, and I kind of enjoyed that to some element, uh, but it was also horrifying and exhausting and, and everything else you can imagine. So, um, so yeah, so the answer is that I'm crazy person and that's that's really the only the only real answer I can give you. So kids, if you're considering a career in journalism, that's your that that's your answer. Yeah. Um, that, that's the way that's the that's the way to emulate Joe Posnanski. And and just so you know, I've I've really told both my daughters not to go anywhere near journalism. So, uh they they I don't know how much they're going to listen to me, uh but uh, but yeah, no, I I would definitely uh tell you that that unless you're willing well look there are plenty of great journalists who don't do it the way i do it but if you if you want to write a baseball 100 in three months uh i would strongly recommend that you uh you uh look in the mirror you know and 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 ask yourself why you're doing it because i mean this is specific to you most journalists who end up writing books like their books aren't imminent injury risks for the reader (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. There, there are not that many three pound, 800 page, uh, uh, baseball tomes out there. Uh, there are a few there. I'm not the only one to do it. I mean, there's Bill James books are out there and, and some baseball, uh, uh, encyclopedias are out there. I'm, I'm certainly not the only person to wade into this sort of wild, uh, wild space, but, uh, but I'm one of the few. So I have to ask then you, you since you, you've, you've mentioned you, you started twice at, uh, on your blog, you, you finally got all the way through 100 for the athletic. I'm still in the, uh, still, I am in the, the more the side gig form of this and, and, we don't know each other that well, so it's maybe this is a tough question to answer. But my schedule is to write three of these a week. They're not going to be as long as yours, but they're still pretty long, pretty involved. What do sure. you what do you set my odds are of finishing it on schedule in December of 2022? Oh, I totally have total faith in you, Jeff. I, I have I have 100 faith in you because because I'm going to be following, and I will you know if you if you even start flagging a little bit, I'm just going to be sending you ferocious angry emails saying where's my next tennis player um you know look it's it's you have to love it i mean i i do joke about you know all of those things you have to love it i loved doing it i really did i mean it was hard and it was exhausting and and there were times i asked myself why in the world i would you know try something this 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 nutty but getting into the players and learning about their lives and 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 trying to figure out a different way to tell a hundred stories. Um, I loved it. I mean, it's, 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 it's what I, it's what I do. It's, I mean, it's everything that, that matters to me about, about writing. So, um, you know, I, I, I see how much you love the game and, and this is such a fun idea, you know, it's such a fun concept. I, I, you and I have talked about me doing a tennis 100 and, you know, somewhere in, in, in the years ahead and, and uh, which is great. Cause you can, you can sort of pave the way for me, but I, I think the concept of, of trying to rank tennis players from all eras, men and women. So, so you're talking about Bill Tilden and you're talking about Serena Williams and you're talking about Martina and you're talking about Federer. I mean, it's, 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 it's uh it's wonderful it's wonderful and, and there's no way to do it and and every person that you do up at a certain point every person that you do will create a real argument and and that's to me that's the fun of it i mean that's the that's the real fun of it and and i'm you know i'm curious where is a guy like Yvonne lendl going to be on that list where is where is somebody like Monica Sellis going to be on that list? Where is, you know, the, where are you going to put the ponchos? Where are you going to put, uh, uh, you know, Billie Jean King? I mean, these are, these are, these are, you know, for tennis fans, these are players of, they don't, they're not connected in so many ways. I mean, there's nothing in our minds that really connects uh, Billie Jean King with Rafael Nadal, other than they both played tennis. And, and I think putting them both in context and, 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 uh, and putting a list together like this is, uh, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad you, you pinpointed my main reason of doing this, which is once mine is done, you'll recognize how much better it could be. Like, oh, well, then I can do it. It'll just, it'll, it will serve to make yours look better. So, I mean, job done if that happens. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned some of those names. Um, I want, I have a few, a, a few comparisons. I want to give you a speed round of tennis ranking questions, but one or, one or two more before that. Um, 
tennis is much more peak focused. I think when we're talking about the greats and you can have like Tracy Austin, who's definitely, she has to be on a list like this, but she basically had a four year career Uh, or Maureen Connolly, who was injured and done when she was before the age where I graduated from college. Um, With baseball, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty long minimum, right? I mean, is there anybody on your list who didn't have like a strong 10, 12 year career? Well, there are a few that, that had, you know, I mean, Koufax is the most famous of those. He, his career was 10 years, but it really was, I mean, it was six years of being very good and four years of being unbelievably dominant. And it was done at 30. So, I mean, he's, he's like kind of representative of that, of that peak uh, only kind of player. But, you know, even in football, it's, you know, it's, it's much the, the peak matters so much more like a guy like Gail Sayers. I mean, really had four years period. I mean, you know, that's, that's basically all he had. Um, so yeah, I would, I would imagine tennis is very, very peak oriented. And, and I, you know, there's something I, I was thinking about as I was just amazed at Rafa, you know, getting to 21 that before the big four came along, the record was, was Pete at 14. Right. But before Pete, the record was 13. And, and, you know, then before, you know, it's, it's like 13 majors is, I mean, that's, that's an incredible achievement, absolutely extraordinary achievement, but that's the very, very, very best that you could do. So peaks just didn't last that long. I mean, you know, the 13 is one a year for 13 years. Nobody had 13 years, you know, even Connors and guys like that. I mean, how many did Jimmy Connors win? Seven? Yeah, not very many compared to right. what, we, what we think of him and his, as, and his longevity. And I mean, think about that. So that's Jimmy Connors played forever and, and had the dominant 74 season. And yet he only still only won like seven majors. I mean, and only, I mean, it's an incredible achievement, but that's why I think tennis is very, very, very peak oriented. It's, it's, it's how good you were for two years, three years, four years. I mean, that's, that's, you know, obviously there are guys that go on, but I mean, you look at McEnroe's peak, it's very short, right? You look at Borg's peak, it's very short. And, and they were dominant at that time. And these are, these are some of the best players who ever played. So the extreme example for baseball, I would think would be Shohei Otani. Like if, if, if he keeps producing the way he did in 2021, like how, how long does it take before he cracks the second edition of your list? Wow. Um, it's got to still be four or five years of doing something like this, or at least somewhat at this level. I mean, the guy that, that, that to me best represents incredible peak is Dwight Gooden and Dwight Gooden really had two years where he was, otherworldly one year where he was as good as anybody who's ever pitched. Right. And, you know, then he played on, he played on for a bunch of years and had some good years and ended up with some pretty decent career numbers, but the peak was only two years. And so in in baseball, that's just not quite going to get you there. I mean, you've got to, you've got to have a good four five, six year peak. Um, You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be, like at your very, very, very best for four or five or six years, but you got to be like really, really, really good for, for that extent of time. And, and, you know, in tennis, that would be, you know, I mean, like how many players have been number one, you know, for 
times, you know, for at the end, for at the end of four years, how many players have been number one in the world um, or top five in the world or, or, you know, there, there's so many different ways that I think you can look at it with tennis. Uh, but, but definitely I think the peak has got to be much longer in baseball. Yeah. Gooden's a great example. I always think of, of Fernando Valenzuela as the extreme, yeah. but he, he wasn't quite the same level as a, a, a peak Dwight Gooden. Okay, so I promised the speed round. So I've got lists of two and a couple of, a few cases, three or four names. Tell me, tell me who you'd put higher on your tennis oh, this 100. Is brutal. Yeah, I love it. Okay, for, let's, let's start with it with an easy one. Ha ha. Um, Helen Wills, Suzanne Longlin. Ooh. The, cl- the classic question. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not an easy one. No, it's um, not an, no I, was, I, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> I don't know how to do it any other way. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I am, you know, obviously familiar with both. I'm not, obviously not everybody's familiar with both of them, uh, but I am familiar with both. I'd have to look really closely. My gut tells me that Helen Mills is the, is, is, is the better player, but, but boy, that's really close. I I mean, am I wrong? Am I, is there actually one that. Well, I can't tell you the answers because I'd be giving away parts ah, of my list. You would be giving it away. All right. Well, that's yeah. that's my gut feeling is that Helen Mills would be a little bit ahead. Okay. I was going to preface this by saying there are no right answers. There's only wrong answers, but that that seems uncharitable. Um, <laughs> okay. So we're going with Helen Wills. Um, Borg versus McEnroe. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So... This is this there the thing I like about Borg versus McEnroe as a as a question is that it it sort of gets into the head-to-head question, which is you know, which is I think really important. I think Borg had a higher like peak in some ways. I mean, I think was a more dominant player in some ways, you know, winning all the you know the consecutive Wimbledons and French Opens. Um but McEnroe was better when, when it came down to it. I mean, you know, McEnroe did lose the first time uh, when they played, but he, you know, it was McEnroe was by the end, McEnroe was clearly the better player um, and, and had proven it and kind of, you know, had, had whatever role he had in driving Borg out of tennis. So, you know, I, I kind of think I got to put McEnroe a little bit higher. Wow, that's a big call. I don't think most people would agree. With, I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, no, I, I think I think most people would not agree. With that. I think most people yeah, yeah. would say Borg had the better career. Yeah, um, yeah, and they'd be right. They'd be right. I mean, Borg has more majors. Borg had the uh, more dominance. But you know, that one is a great situation where we we saw those two guys at their peak. I mean, it's not like Borg was old when when McEnroe started beating him, and and uh, you know, McEnroe's style. Uh, so unique, so, you know, so wonderful to watch. And that style was kryptonite to, to Borg. It just, it just ended up being kryptonite. So uh, I'm going to go with McEnroe. I don't think, I don't know if that's right. I don't know that you should do that, but that's what I'm thinking right now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's closer than I thought it was. I thought I knew the answer. I, I, the more I look into it, the less I'm sure. Um I think also McEnroe has done a disservice to his own, his own legacy, not because of being a blowhard or anything. He, I mean, he often <laughs> isn't, but uh, I don't mean it like that. Just that so much of the narrative about McEnroe's career has become that he was a perfectionist. He, right. he brought himself down. He stopped himself from accomplishing what his reaching his potential. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But, uh, but I think that focuses too much on the negative when the positive is 
so overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, I, you know what, I agree with you 100%. I, I like Macro. I mean, I, I, you know, I think he sometimes is over the top on uh, as a broadcaster, but I like him a lot of the time as a broadcaster. And I like that he is this, he's a character and in a, in a real way. And, and I think you're hundred percent right. He's been very hard on himself um, and his career as he should be right. I mean, he, he probably could have squeezed out some more if he, if he'd worked harder at the end, if he, if he'd wanted, uh, you know, to be, but I think, I think that he wouldn't have been John McEnroe then. Right. Like, I mean, like, I think, Part of the deal of being John McEnroe is getting bored. I, I think like you you get to a point where you're so much better at that point than everybody else. You know, he, in his in his period where he was just blowing Connors off the court at, at, at Wimbledon, and I mean, he just he had taken his game to a level where it's like, all right, you know, now what? I mean, the guy wanted to be a rock and roll guitarist. I mean, he wanted to just he wanted to live life. So. I, I really respect that, but I, I'm, I'm huge. Even in baseball, I'm a huge peak guy. Like peak to me is so much more important than everything else. And I think at his peak, he not only played tennis differently from everybody else, but he played tennis about as well. And, and was about as unbeatable considering the, the search, the surfaces he played on and the equipment that he used. I don't know how you could have been a whole lot better than Jimmy, than, uh, than John McEnroe. Yeah, I, I got to agree with all that. So it, it sounds like you already have an answer to this one. McEnroe versus Connors. You're going McEnroe there? Yeah. Well, Connors is a, it's another one. I mean, Connors in 74 was like, it looked like he was going to completely blow up the sport. Uh, and then, and then Borg came along and Borg was clearly superior. Uh, then Connors, you know, but Connors, you give Connors all the credit in the world for, coming back in the, in the early to mid eighties and, and, and finding a second, a second wind and a second career. He was a terrific player. Um, but at their best, I think McEnroe is the better player. Okay. Next one. Arantxa Sanchez Vicario versus Gabriela Sabatini. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so I love Gabby Sabatini like that. She was like one of my favorite players. I mean, for obvious reasons, I was a teenage boy at the time and and uh you know i mean she she was such so glamorous in every possible way but you know arancha just i i don't i don't know how she just kept uh she kept she was like a little Rafa, right? Like she just kept fighting and, and like she, she had no business ever beating Graf with, with her weapons and, and, and that she did. And, and uh, I think head to head, I think I'm going to pick a Rancho. I just, I just, that's again, I, I'm not looking at any of their numbers. I don't have any of their, of their stats in front of me, but, but gut feeling I'm going to go with a Rancho. Okay, interesting. That's another one. Like Borgen McEnroe, I thought I knew the answer, and it's closer than I thought. It's a, it's it's an interesting comparison. Um, okay, back to men. Jim Courier versus Michael Chang. Oh, I'm definitely a Courier. I I like Michael Chang a lot. I I actually saw Michael Chang play. He played in a tournament in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, when I was uh, just starting out. It was the first. Uh, one of the first sporting events I ever covered. And it was the first tennis tournament I ever covered. Um, and uh, so I watched him play and interviewed him. And he was like 16 at the time. Um, 
obviously what he did to Lendl in that French Open final was was incredible, incredible, and and frustrating and everything else. I think Curry. I to me that I don't. Maybe that's one where the stats show that being a lot closer than you know. I Courier at his at his peak when he was winning French Opens, um, that was great. I I think Courier's a lot better than Chang. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the numbers complicate that one. I was surprised that and I, I had the same idea. I, I grew up as a pretty big Courier fan, although I was a bigger Michael Chang fan. Those are my guys. Uh, yeah. But Courier, Courier doesn't show up as well in at least my sort of advanced analytics. Interesting. Um, still great, of course. But uh, okay. Monica Sellis versus Venus Williams. Oh, wow. I'm not you're making not this easy me, for you. I you're not giving that. me any easy ones. You're not giving me any easy ones. Well, the easy ones aren't interesting. Got to admit that. <laughs> yeah, but it'd be, I, I wouldn't feel as, as dumb as I do. Um, do, you need, do you need a break? I can give you an easy one for the next one. No, no. I'm, I'm okay. Good. Um, wow. All right. So Venus, at the very beginning of her career, thoroughly dominated, unbelievable. What a great player more majors i'm sure than monica at the end of the day um but Celis before the stabbing best player in the world surpassed uh steffi i think who i who i have steffi i have ranked as high as anybody on, on the list so i guess i'm gonna go with Celis. i don't feel great about it it's you're actually convincing me not to do a tennis 100 now because I'm like, <laughs> but i i don't know that i want to make any of these calls um it's really hard really hard yeah i i guess i would go with salas i mean boy that's unbelievably close and i'm not sure i'm right but i think i would go with salas yeah i would love to know what the conventional wisdom is on that because it's, it seems like anyone who talks about either one just loves them and would put them yes. at the top of any list, which yes. is, is fair. I, I want to put them both at the top of lists too. Um, would you, would you make an adjustment for Celis's stabbing? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, look, I think, I don't think, uh, I don't think you can look at her career and not at least make an adjustment, whether or not you make it, you know, an actual like statistical, you know, mathematical adjustment. I don't know if you can, um, but to me, it's such a part of her story. Her her peak, she was she truly was at her best when it happened, and and it's you know it's it's horrifying and 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 you know we missed out on so much good tennis. I it, it breaks my heart. And then and then her coming back and 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 you know having a career after that. I just think you know you get you get a lot of bonus points in my mind for 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 her doing that, um, but. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like I did have to do some of that with baseball with World War II. And 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 then there were certain players who did get hurt in their prime. And you had to think about, well, what what might have been. But again, what might have been is not what was. So very, very tough. Uh, Monica Salas is going to be one of the toughest people you have to rank, I think. Yeah, no question. I knew that going in. And then when the list came out, I was glad that I mean, the, the, the gaps start to widen when you get to the top of the list, obviously. So there's, yeah. you can only move around so much, but still it's, it's a tough decision to make. So I'll give you a, a few names. Let's say Daniel Medvedev retires today with his, okay. with his one, one slam and finals and the rest of everything he's done. Um, here's a few possibilities. Kafelnikov, Merit Safin, Juan Martin Del Potro. How does Medvedev stack up? Ooh. 
Well, it's funny. I mean, uh, Del Potro is, of course, one of my favorite players. Uh, and, and, you know, now you start getting into some of the fun stuff that I got into with baseball, which was, okay, so wherever Juan Del Potro ends up, wherever you rank him, you get to talk about that forehand, right? I mean, like, like, like at some point where he's ranked is not as relevant as the incredible essay you can write about that forehand, which is the most ridiculous shot I've ever seen, right? His forehand. I was there uh, when he played uh, Djokovic in Brazil uh, in one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, one of the most amazing matches I've ever seen in my entire life uh, at, at the Olympics. And it was one of those where literally every time uh, Novak hit to his forehand, uh, Del Potro had hit a winner. Like literally, it was like we were just sitting there at courtside going, why do you keep hitting to his forehand? You cannot hit to his forehand. And he would like hit eight shots to the backhand and one would get away to the forehand and then he did a winner. I mean, it was, it was, I've never seen a ball hit as hard as, 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 uh, uh, Del Potro hit that day. So I think, you know, whether, wherever he ranks, you get to do that. Kafelnikov, same thing. The whole, the whole machine gun uh, style that he had. Uh, Safin was a tremendous player. I think I have Medvedev, you know, him retiring so young is a bad, uh, is a bad break. Um, if, if, if that would happen, but I think I have him ranked a little bit higher uh, than, than, uh, Safin and maybe a little bit higher than Kafelnikov, Del Potro, you know, um, so many injuries, so much, you know, so much, uh, so many missed tournaments and then, and then coming back and being sort of a shell of himself at times, I guess I would put Medvedev uh, at the top of that list, I guess. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a close one with, especially with current guys in this era, because you don't have that many accomplishments to go off of. Right. Right. They're all right. You have to pick people who were like number four because they snuck past Andy Murray for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. Similar question. Ashley Barty, if she retired today, she decides to go back to cricket or something. I don't know. Um, How does she stack up against, let's say Simona Halep, Petra Kvitova, Victoria Azarenka. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, well, all right. So, you know what? My gut tells me she's, she's ahead of all three of them. Um, you know, as a rank of, because of the, because of the comeback, maybe she, maybe she's, you know, at the top, maybe with Ash Barty. I mean, Halep, I've so enjoyed watching Halep play, but I, Halep's career seems less than what it should have been. I don't know. I mean, that's, there, there were certain people, there were certain women, particularly in the in the two thousands and two thousand tens, who got it to number one, where you were like, eh, I don't know, I don't know that that person really has earned a number one spot, you know. And and Halep, it's been, uh, I don't know, I I think I've got her behind Ezarenka and and behind uh, um, Ash Barty. Maybe I have Azarenka. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I have Azarenka number one and Ash Barty number two and Halep. Who is the fourth one you said? Kvitova. Oh, Kvitova. Kvitova. I, I think I think I have uh, Halep ahead of Kvitova 
Okay. Uh, and I think I have committed a fourth. That would be it. That's my gut, my gut feeling telling me that. Yeah, I, th- I think that Azarenka peak is going to end up being way above the others because she was, yeah. she was neck and neck with Serena for a while. She was, that is true. That really is true. And then, and then, and she's proven to be very, you know, durable. I mean, in, in, in so many ways. So I, and she's, she's wonderful to watch too. I mean, you know, I, I love watching as Barty. I, Here's something that I can throw to you, and and you know, it's actually something I'm writing a little bit about as I write about uh, about um, Rafa's win, and that is tennis. Unlike every other sport, literally every other sport, for me, I like love everybody. Like not <laughs> not quite everybody. There are certain players that that I don't have much use for for various cough, reasons. Cough, 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 Alexander Zverev, cough, cough. That was, cough. I, I wasn't going to say any names, but I'm not disagreeing with you. We, we, so say, certain... we say names on the Tennis Abstract podcast. If you, <laughs> if you start getting accused of domestic violence, we, we say names out loud. Yeah, no, no, I, then I, I'm not going to disagree with you. But, there are, but mostly I love, like I don't even root for players as much as I root for the joy of watching people play and that's not true in any other sport like even in golf where i don't necessarily have a a rooting interest i'll find one i'll there's like oh i want that person to win i just i don't even it's like it's like an instinct i don't even i don't even think about it but not in tennis like i it's i'm you know i've written so much about novak and how much i love watching novak play but i felt great joy when rafa won i felt great joy when roger won I have great joy when Andy Murray won. Like I love all those guys. And so, so, you know, you talk about Ash Barty, it's like, Oh, it's what, that was really cool to watch her play. But then you, you remind me about how much I loved watching Azarenka and Serena sort of battle each other, how much I loved watching Serena at her prime. Like I, I just kind of like all tennis, which is weird. It's like, it's not how I am in any other sport. Yeah. I definitely feel the same way about the women's game. I been I went down the list one day of the top 100 and there were like 20. I didn't have an opinion on, but of the remaining 80, I was like, I'm a fan of 65 of these women. (laughs) How how can you approach a a major with that kind of attitude? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's hundred percent right. I I mean, it really is true. Like I, I was a big, big, big Steffi fan. And so this goes way back. I mean, it goes back to the nineties. I was a big Steffi fan. I was a big Martina fan. I actually liked Martina over Chrissy. That was one that I just kind of, uh, did have it a favorite. I wasn't that I didn't like Chris Everett, but I, but I, I was a, a Martina fan. And then I was a Steffi fan, even though Steffi unseated Martina. And then I was a Sellis fan, even when Sellis, like, it's like, I just like watching the best players play. It's, it's really, it's, it's so unlike how I am in every other sport. Yeah. This, this sounds kind of bandwagony. Well, I just, I just, but the thing is I'm not even bandwagon because then I like Steffi again too. It's not like I, it's not like I switch allegiances or anything. Okay. I just am like, oh, this is great. I like watch. I actually really, really get a huge kick out of Medvedev. I, I like Medvedev a lot, and I know there are a lot that don't and and don't like the way he rolled his eyes and said boring at, at the during the during the uh, the uh, you know the post uh, match thing and. And I, you know, know that there are people, you know, he's, he has a temper and all that. The guy's a joy to watch play. I mean, he's, he's such a, such a, a tremendous tactician and, and I, I get a huge kick out of him. I just, so it's like, I just like watching tennis played at its highest level. I guess and, that's what it comes down to. 
And some of the people who complain about his attitude, they're going to turn around a week later and say that tennis players are all too boring and they're all cut right. from the same mold. So, I mean, you, you got to pick a side here. I think it's funny because I have watched a few during this Australian Open. I watched a few post uh, press conferences with Medvedev, and I, I think the guy's great. Like I, yeah. I think his answers to questions are great. I think he's 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 a pretty smart guy. I mean, I think he, you know, he's doing this in a second language, and yet he's very entertaining and and thoughtful, and and you know, and he he knows his own weaknesses. He like totally admits that he, he loses his mind on the court. I, I, I don't know. I, I just really like the guy. Yeah. I hope my hypothetical is way off and then he doesn't retire this month. No, I want him to keep going. I, I, I want him to get to number one and have, have people knock him off. He's a great, he's a great like chaser, but he's, a, he'd be a great villain at the top. I mean, he'd be, he'd be great on every level. I, I just think he, I, I, like I say, I just get a big kick out of the guy. Okay, so this has to be our last one. I'm, I've taken more of your time than I was planning on, and I'm running out of time myself. So a big yes. one to close us down. Since you mentioned, just mentioned both these names, Steffi Graf versus Martina Navratilova. Ooh, well, I, you know what? That's going to come down to at the heart of it. Uh, Steffi, I think, had a little bit more dominance, I guess. You know, I mean, this, the the golden slam and, and, and Steffi. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's not fair. Um, I think Steffi, I think Steffi, I, I don't know how much better you could be than Martina was in the mid eighties. I just, you know, and, and it was by then the difference between the equipment in the eighties and the nineties when Steffi got to be at her best was already, you know, there was already like a gap. And, and so, you know, Steffi seemed to hit the ball much, much, much harder than, than not just Martina, but anybody who had come along before. Uh, and then Serena comes along and it is, hits the ball much, much harder. And Venus, too, hits the ball much, much harder than anybody had before them. And you wonder how much of that is the equipment, how much of that is the better athletic, uh, you know, better athletes and, 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 you know, all of those things. So, Super tough, but I'm going to go with Steffi. It is a it is a close one. I've been tweaking my algorithms for a year now, and it's not always the same answer. They're yeah. always close, um, and obviously they're both close to the top. But yeah, it's 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 a tough one. Steffi, you can't beat Steffi's peak. Steffi is the highest peak of all time, pretty much no matter how you calculate it. But um, Martina was pretty good too. Yeah, no, I would say Martina. She wasn't bad. She wasn't bad uh, at all. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't envy you this, but the great thing is once you put the list together, I can look at it and decide whether or not I want to do it. So there you go. Perfect. I'll, I'll get some of the hard work out of the way for you. Once, <laughs> once that's done, I mean, the, writing, it's easy, right? The, it's it's not easy, but it's the fun part. I mean, you would think the ranking is the fun part, but the fun part is once you've made the decision, hey, this is where I'm putting Steffi Graf and let the let the chips fall where they may then you're writing about Steffi Graf and what an incredible player she was that's the best part Joe thank you again um and hopefully we'll check back in midway through the tennis 128 and you can tell me everything I did wrong I would love it I would love it all right this has been episode 109 of the tennis abstract podcast with me has been Joe Posnanski author of the baseball 100 and many other wonderful books you can find him at joeposnanski.substack.com You can follow the Tennis 128 as I publish it at tennisabstracts.com, both on the front page and on the blog. 
Um, check back later this week for a new podcast episode with Carl Bialik talking about player number 127. And also checking out on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. I'll be posting about an upcoming podcast episode with Alex Gruskin at Cracked Rackets. So a lot of stuff going on here. Thanks for listening. <laughs>